Redefined is hosted by me, Zainab Salbi, and brought to you by Find Center, a search engine for your soul. Part library, part temple, Find Center presents a world of wisdom, organized. Check it out today at www.findcenter.com and please subscribe to Redefined for free on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. What's most important about life? What is the essence of life? Is it what we do? How much we earn? How many social media followers we have? Or is it, do we live our lives in kindness to ourselves and to others? Do we live our lives in love to ourselves and to others? In nearly losing my life, I was confronted with these questions, and it led me to the conversations that make up Redefined about how we draw our inner maps and the pursuit of meaningful personal change. Mike Assistine, Amy McGrath, is someone who knows about war firsthand. She was the first woman in the Marine Corps to fly a combat mission in an FA-18 where she flew over Afghanistan and Iraq. It is one thing to talk about war, it's quite another thing to have fought in and experienced wars, loved in them, and lost loved ones to them. Amy is a woman of conviction and courage, and one who has constantly charted new territories where no one, or sometimes no woman, has gone before. Her experience, as documented in her book, Honor Bound, not only speaks of what it means to go for your dreams, even when people think it is not possible. It also talks about what it means to stand up for your values, despite public attacks, as she experienced in her most recent Senate run in 2020 against Republican leader Mitch McConnell. In this conversation, we talk about what it means to see your blessings and to use them for good and how to hold the struggle between faith and duty and loss and love in one's heart while staying anchored in faith and freedom. Please join me. I want to ask you about war and your experience being the first woman uh, in the Marine Corps and to flight combat mission in Afghanistan and Iraq missions, you know, and you've taught combat tactics and you've been in, in different military discussions. What, in your experience, uh, do people not know about war? What do people do not know about wars that they need to understand? I think for me... I was very conflicted. I had trained to do a job and I was going to do that job and I was very passionate about that job. But it also, my experience in both Iraq and Afghanistan made me question our own leadership in the United States in ways that I didn't question prior to to those conflicts and made me want to make sure that people that were making decisions about wars in the future uh, had some experience of what it was really like, that it wasn't so clean, that it's not always um, so black and white. And in both of those um, conflicts, it was very much not black and white. And I think that was the thing that I, try to come back here to the United States and explain to people when they ask me about wars, particularly on the campaign trail. I would, you know, try to explain to them that in some places, you know, it's not like how you grow up, there's good guys and bad guys. Some, sometimes there's just people surviving and they're gonna do what they need to do to survive. And that was, that is my experience now in Ukraine and what's going on, I think it's a little different in a sense that, um, and this is my perspective being an American here, is that you really have a, 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 a moral fight that there are good guys and bad guys here. I'm not somebody that believes that every soldier on the other side is somebody who's inherently evil. 
Um, but I think that there are evil forces, uh, i.e. Vladimir Putin, and um, that he has managed to, to really brainwash much of his population, um, either into submission or with disinformation, and including the, the, his Russian army. And um, what's happening in Ukraine is, is just terrible. And I, I was thinking about it yesterday in terms of the human toll and thinking about the fact that we have to continue to work for a world where one man's ego does not drive such death and destruction in the world, you know? And I, I think here in America, we have some checks. Um, I'd like to have more checks <laughs> on, on our leadership, but we have some. And, um, and we have to keep working for a world where you can't have a Vladimir Putin do what he's doing right now. How do we do that? I mean, it, you know, it's interesting because I, I agree with you on the fact that, you know, I find it like in a time where we actually need to unite as humanity for Earth and for climate change and all the disaster that is happening in just our Mother Earth, which does not distinguish national geography, frankly, right, or ethnicity or race or anything like that. And here we are again going into that old story of fighting for one man's honor and ego and whatever it is. How do we do that? How do we bring people to understand that wars are not the solution? I mean, like, I mean, and and maybe, I don't know, I mean, maybe one way is to understand how pe- how wars fail people, ultimately fail people. I think the, the first step is to unite, as, as you mentioned so eloquently, not just governments that are governments of, of free people, but um, private industry, um, which you're seeing in sort of unprecedented ways. You know, companies basically saying there is something more important than the dollar. There is something more important than making money. And I'm going to take a stand, whether it's BP or McDonald's or whatever, you know, pulling out of, of Russia and taking a stand. And then just people in general, uniting, protesting, whatever, doing what they can do, um, donating to, to humanitarian relief efforts, communications, continuing to talk about this, you know, in the news, continuing to make it important to people. I think that's number one, uniting to push back. The other thing is, is and this is just the military side of me. I believe there is value in strength. I believe there is value in in having, you know, a a strong military, a strong NATO um, to be able to to stand. And it's it's really difficult in an age of of nuclear weapons, right? Um, But I think that's really important. And then I think we have to keep showing the world the human toll of these wars. And, um, you know, I don't have all the answers. But I think that that I believe in the in the goodness of human beings. For example, if we were able to show the Russian people what is happening right now, I believe that the Russian in the goodness of those people to be able to say, okay, enough is enough. Mm. I have so many questions, you know, relates to what you said, and and one of them is like it's interesting because as I read your book and as I look at your career and your speeches, you know, it's sort of you've found a way to hold between, let's say, the Montessori schooling education that you had as a child, right, which is more flexible and around the ch- each individual child and the sort of the strict uh, military uh, schooling that you then had as an adult. And in between, you went to a Catholic school, I believe, as well, right? And, and in all your talks, including your answer right now, you just constantly balance between that human, you know, the soulful uh, answers and, and, and perspective with the, we need strength, we need clarity, we how do you do that? And what did these two educations really taught you? Because people get to sway either all the way on the one side or the other, right? They either become very strict or very flexible. How, what did you learn from, this ed- from your education that taught you to hold both sides of the story? Well, I think going back to my education, 
that helped me determine where I want to go. The flexibility, the, the ability, and then this is what I love about Montessori, to be able to just sort of figure out who you are. And, and that allowed me to say, okay, the military is, is what I want. I want that discipline. I want that challenge. And so when I went into the military, it was very much a pragmatic institution. You know, at the end of the day, here are our values, but how are we going to accomplish the mission? And that was always first and foremost on my mind. And when I think about the world today, I think about, and really in politics, this is sort of what, what I tried to exude as a candidate, is this balance between, all right, here are our values, right? But, but, but being a leader, you have to have those values. And you but you have to have them balanced with what is in the realm of possibility. What can be done? Because if you just have values, you know, that's great, but it's not going to, you know, get things done for people. And, and in a sense, you may lose people along the way because you're not moving in the right direction. And so I always tried to look at things of, you know, hey, I've got my values, my core values. Those are not going to change. And you've seen that a lot in American politics in the last 10 years, people who you thought had values you know, they, they didn't really have them or they lost them. That is something that you can't lose. But at the same time, you have to be pragmatic. It's that art of, of values plus what's in the realm of possibility. What can be done? It's interesting because you also, I would say, had made sacrifices for your values or for your dreams even, you know. So, you know, the question I have, when one is value driven, when one one's when one's life is value driven, are there sacrifices that needs to be done? And then, how do you deal with these sacrifices? Are they worth it? Even at the end, uh, some may ask. I think that's a value, a, a, a really important question. I think for me, I had this drive at a very young age, um, a drive that many young girls did not have. Uh, to go into the military, to fly fighter jets. And I knew it was in me. I knew it. I mean, I, I was able to go outside and, and, and you know, beat all the boys in, in, in basketball and soccer. And, you know, so I had the physical talent. God gave me that talent. I didn't know why, but I sort of over time figured, oh, that's why, you know, that's why I have this drive. That's why I have this talent. And this is what I have to do. And I'm going to do it, you know? And that was, that was sort of what was in me. And I just went with it. Um, and, and I always look back at that time and I, I recognize that a lot of people don't sort of always have that drive or that, that, that guiding path. Um, and I felt blessed to have had that. And so when I say I felt blessed, um, my favorite quote of all time is to whom much is given, much is expected. I felt like I was given a lot. I was given tremendously loving parents who were, um, who, who valued me, even though I was a little bit different. I was given a great education. I was given the ability to be born here in the United States of America in a land of tremendous opportunity. All of those things, physical um, ability and I felt like I've got to give back. And that was where the values come in. And that's where the sacrifice comes in because, you know, it's not about just, just reaching and for me making a ton of money or whatever. It's about, Hey, you've been given a lot. Now you owe it back. You owe it back to our country. You owe it back to your community. You owe it back to your family. And in, in some respects, you owe it back to um, humanity, to women to women around the world, you know, to do the very best that you can. I, I mean, I'm tearing up because I, I really, really believe that. And, you know, when people ask me what's triggered you to start Women Women International, you're 23 years old, immigrant from Iraq, and you don't know anything about these other people. I'm like, 
I owe it as a human being. Like this is my human responsibility, and it's uh, it's cl- it was clear for me. Actually, I know I don't hear many people say what you just said. I was like, thank God, I'm not the only, you know, hallelujah. There are sisters out there, you know. It, how do you and did you <laughs> combat or deal with sexism? You know, like, because you face it apparently, you know, since you were a child, because as you said, you, you know, like these boys games, and then you went into the Marine, and then you went into politics with a lot of sexist guys. How do you deal with that constant sexism? And what are the war stories that you, that taught you about your own strength on how to deal and, 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 and tactics to deal with sexism? Well, it's there. You, you have to acknowledge it. I think I, I sort of look at it now as as a and, and this isn't always the, the best way to talk about it to people, but it's sort of to me a little bit like water off a duck's back. I, I am it, it's there. I can't change it. Um, I can do my best. Uh, somebody told me once in the military, just be excellent. Just just go out and be excellent. You're always there. You're always going to have to prove yourself in ways that men will not have to. But if you are, you know, really good at what you do, um, what I found in the military was you you were accepted. It was harder, but you get there. And and the other thing that helped me was my mom because she uh, became a medical doctor in a time when in the 1960s, when women didn't do that, and she experienced a ton of sexism. And so when it happened to me, I would call up my mom and I would say, this is what's going on, mom. Like, what do you think? And her response was, you know, oh, that happened to me too. Just whatever. Just be the number one in your class and you'll be fine. You know? <laughs> and, and so her, her sort of response, I mean, was you can do it. And I, I, did, I, ha- I experienced this too. You just got to press through. And so that has always been my take of just water off a duck's back. We're just going to press through and, and be excellent. It's so interesting because, you know, sometimes, and it's not only necessarily sexism, sometimes any kind of rejection because of discrimination, any of it, right? It's sort of, it can also be demoralizing. It can be like deflating, like, oh, I have to fight this again, right? And I was particularly touched by a story you write about uh, playing soccer match in uh, between Egyptian Marines and, and U.S. Marines. And you were the only woman in the soccer match. And the Egyptian side were like, unhappy with you being an only woman and unhappy with you wearing shorts. They want, you know, and you're like, no, I, I'm going to do it. And this is just one example. I, you know, it happened to be a cultural example, but I think there are many examples that you have in your career of, of rejection, let's say, right? It's just, this is a clear example and a simple one also. And you plowed through it. When you do that, you know, and uh, first of all, it would be great to hear the rest of the story, what happens because, and then when you hear, when, when you go plow through the challenge, right? Like you just, move you know what do you need to you know hold you back and what does such moments and such experiences teach you about what one needs to do you know like what support you need what emotional state of mind you go to like oh how what does one need to go to to hold on to strength and and believe in these challenging moments well for me i always took it as a bit of a challenge I knew that, especially in the fighter squadron, that I was the only, you know, every time that the cockpit opened, especially in a foreign country, you know, you'd look out and there's other people that would, they'd never seen a woman drive, let alone uh, fly a fighter jet. So you, you knew that the sort of all eyes were on you. And I took it as a, as a bit of a challenge, but I also took it as a, as a, um, a way to make a difference. Like I I'm here and I can make a difference in their perception of women, you know, in, in the case of the soccer tournament in the soccer match, uh, at the end, you know, the, the Egyptian men were very respectful of me. I mean, I was a good soccer player. I played division one soccer in college, 
So I was only a couple of years out of college and I was still in good shape and I was a damn good soccer player. And, and so I, I think that it is sort of floored them a little bit that that's a, a woman could hold her own. And I, I look back on that experience and I think how, did maybe that, that changed some people's minds. I mean, there were, there were thousands of people in the stands, all men. And if I weren't there, they, they'd never may never see a woman, you know, do the sorts of things that, that I did. So that was, that was really cool. But I think you do have to just plow through it. And I remember a story on the campaign trail where I was in, in, in front of a um, editorial board where they, they go and they sort of grill you with policy questions. There was a man on the board and this is in the congressional campaign. And he said to me, um, his question was not about policy. It was, you know, he looked at me and he said, well, how, how are you going to, you have three small kids. How, how are you going to manage being a, a congressperson and flying to Washington, D.C. for three days or four days a week? And these three small kids, how, how are you going to manage that? Uh, and I looked at him and I said, you know, I, I don't really know. I'm going to call up the incumbent who has the seat right now. And I'm gonna ask him how he does it because he has kids the same age as mine. And I just left it at that. And all the women on the panel just started shaking their head. <laughs> but I mean, you know, you just sort of, for me, I, I kind of try to call out sexism without, without, you know, calling it out so much, but to just show, expose like, hey man, would you have ever asked that question of a man? No, no. You seem that you also have a, a sports attitude about it. Like, okay, this is a game. And no, I don't mean a game, but like, you know, a competitive attitude. Like, let's go through it. Let's, you know, you don't let it enter you. You don't let it deflate you. Is, is that right? Am I reading yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, right? and in this part of this is the, the confidence I had through sports, which was such a part of my life. Um, it's this attitude of, all right, bring it on. You know, you, you think you can beat me? Bring it on. I don't think you can. But, but let's try, you know, you can try. And, and that goes all the way back to being, you know, seven, eight years old and playing football with my brother and beating all of his friends. <laughs> you know? No, I love it because, I mean, you're, you're reminding me of my boxing instructor and sort of like he said, when you get hit, you just like play, you play around. You don't let, you don't, you fool around, you joke around, you, you don't let yourself be hit basically, you know? And, and I think that's really important for, for all people who are facing different challenges is that, you know, do not let it come to you, you know, be, be, you know, do something about it, change it, fight it, yep. but don't let it get into, into you. So it deflates you and demoralizes you. Yeah. That's right. And it's so important in politics too, because, you know, we tend to take a lot of things personally. Um, most people that, you know, say bad things about you, the moment you step into the political arena, you, you know, you're, you're hated by 50% of the population. And you have to recognize that all those people don't really know you. You, you just sort of have to water off the duck's back. You know, you know who you are. You know, you're a good person inside. You've got the experiences that you have. And I think, you know, politics is not for people who, don't know who they are <laughs> because you will internalize a lot and it is deflating. And because there's a lot of negativity, a ton of sexism. I mean, you know, attack ads on TV to flyers that have like the absolute worst picture of you on it. Um, and you just have to sort of, you know, live with it and move on because what you're doing is right and important. Mm. You're, you talk a lot about your own faith and believe. Um, and I want to explore how does that play in your life? And I want to quote a couple of things that you said in your book, Honor Bound. Uh, one of them is going back to your time in, um, in combat, you said, duty notwithstanding, there was a spiritual reckoning in, drumming, in dropping bombs on humans. Tell us more about that spiritual reckoning. What does that mean? And ultimately, how did you handle it? I think uh, it's even hard for me to talk about. Um, if you're a person of faith, uh, is, as I am, and you sort of 
grew up with this attitude of thou shalt not kill. Um, you, you sort of believe that you are a good person at heart. And when I went into combat and did the things that I did, it made me question that. You know, who am I in this world? What, what am I doing to other human beings? And I still struggle with that. I still struggle with what it is I did. Um, not because there is, is a flooding of regret. It's almost because there isn't a flooding of regret. I was doing my job and, and because there is not a ton of regret, it's even worse. Um, because that, what does that say about me as a human being? And so I, I still struggle with that. A lot of what I deal with now is um, how do I live my life, the rest of it, and make up for that and do something good for the world. And there's a lot of, you know, trauma that people who go to war now i mean there's a lot of trauma talked about people who face war civilians right but i think there is not enough talked about the trauma people who are in war or facing or in combat are also facing i mean they're talked about uh, soldiers with ptsd and all of that how did you deal how did you heal in in your process was it through the va services was it through church was it through therapy how did you go up was it through just family and friends i mean how did you go about it i think there were a couple different things um, that really helped me i look back and uh, you hear a lot about ptsd and i don't i don't i don't think i have that I think what I struggle with is something more um, in line with what's called moral injury. And it's this, this idea of sort of what I was just talking about, where you, you, you did these things, you regret to, to some degree, but you were also doing your job and you, you, you would do it again. And, and what does that make you as a, as a human? And it's that that idea. And then you add on a layer of why were we there? What were we doing? Was it the right thing to do? And um, when you question that, particularly in the case of Iraq, as I did, uh, the answers aren't always black and white. And, and that's where the moral injury comes in. You know, what were you asked to do for a fight that may not have been so moral? How I, I dealt with it when I first came home after the first couple of combat tours, mostly through my mom, who happens to be a psychiatrist. Uh, she was a medical doctor and then went back to become a psychiatrist later on in her medical career. And that really helped me because she provided me with um, just some outlets where when things were really low, she would say, Things like, well, have you exercised today? Get up, go out, go for a walk. You know, just those things mattered at that time. And also dealing with the psychological part of what I was dealing with. She really helped me through that. I did things like I um, trained my dog. This is before I was married. I trained my dog to be a therapy dog you know, because I wanted to sort of bring some goodness to humanity. So I would take him around to um, hospitals and nursing homes and things like that. And, you know, those were more for me than they were for the patients or the dog. It was more um, me trying to use my free time to maybe not think about what it is I did overseas um, and to try to feel like I was a good person again. Mm. Is that the dog that uh, passed away? Yeah, he he yeah. passed away a month before my first child was born. But he was a he was a uh, he was a treasure and and uh, somebody that uh, I always tease my husband. If if he didn't get along with my husband, he, my husband never would have 
been my husband. <laughs> well, your husband brought a lot of treats to the dog in the early <laughs> part of the relationship. I was like, he knows how to get he to did. your heart, you know. <laughs> he um, talking about the dog, because I mean, you you talk a lot about him in the at at one point in the book and 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 his loss. Um, but beyond the dog, you've also lost colleagues. You know, you've also lost your father. Yeah. Um, to cancer. What have such deaths taught you about what's most important about life? I think, you know, the loss of my dad at a really sort of middle of my first campaign was um, a time when, you know, I was going, going, going. And it brought me back down to what, what is this all about? You know, dad was somebody who championed everything that I did and he was always behind me, but, you know, I took some time off and I remember mom saying to me, you know, dad would want you to get back out there. And so I did, you know, I, 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 I took some time off, but I, I look back at my father, he was so inspirational to me because he was somebody who just wanted to serve. And, um, and I, I so value that. Uh, my time overseas, I, I lost many friends in, in combat and also aviation in the military is inherently a dangerous profession, whether you're in combat or not. And I think, you know, when you fly for, when you're in the military for 24 years and you're flying for 12 of those, you're going to lose some friends. It's, it's a dangerous life. And I've looked back on, on that and I just believe that I'm here and I need to make a difference. When I lost a friend in Afghanistan in my last tour, I came back from that thinking, you know, I'm here and he's not. I owe it to him and to all of my friends that didn't make it because it could have been me. It could have been me in that cockpit that day um, or another day uh, who didn't make it back. And so I need to make sure that the rest of my life matters. It's beautiful. I mean, you, you remind me. So what I'm hearing from you rather is the way your handling or you've handled the loss is actually to give back, to be in service. And it reminds me um, when my father called me one day, you know, the house I grew up in in Iraq and Baghdad, Iraq became at one point, the militias took it, became an execution center and then a brothel and then a military base. And my dad was calling me crying one day. I was like, oh my, this is happening to our house. And I was like, dad, we are the lucky ones. We're the lucky ones. And we are to do something with being lucky, you know, to like make it out, make it safe, being alive, being healthy. And, and I feel that, you know, like you actually, that duty, if you made it in this life, forget about combat or wars. If you made it in this life, you are the lucky one. And the lucky ones have responsibility towards others, towards humanity. Absolutely. Too much is given, much is expected. Mm. And that, mm. that is so important. And it's, you know, even at, at times when I don't want to do, I mean, everybody wakes up some days and they're like, you know, they don't really want to do certain things. You just have to, for me, I go back to that. Hey, I'm here for a reason. You know, I made it through for a reason. Find that reason. Mm, beautiful. And believe in that reason, because that's the, the distinction in you. You believed in the, in, in your in your gift, God's gift, if you may, right? You did not dismiss it. You did not dim the light. You actually went with the light. And I, a, a lot of people dim their lights when they see it. They get afraid of their lights, of their power, of their, you know, whatever gifts God has given them, right? And you just went for the light. You're like, let's do it. Yeah, I love you know, you bring up such a great word, power. You know, there's power in being the first woman to, to do something or to be in a minority in, in a certain area, whether it's, you know, ethnicity or gender or whatever, you have the, the power to really shape people's minds about, you know, certain things. And um, 
it's I, I, I remember that I, I, I can feel that I could I felt it in the Marine Corps. I felt it in politics. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a responsibility, but it's also, yeah, it's, it's powerful. I love it. I love it. Now, Amy, I've noticed often something also beautiful about you. You've never demonized the other, you know, uh, whoever the other is. You talk about friends of yours who are refugees and how much you love them. And you talk about them being as much Americans as anybody else. You talk about, you know, high school friends who you visited who are of different faith and you exposed you to different way of life, but yet we're all the humans. Tell me more about that because we are in an era still. I mean, I know Trump is gone, but that demonization of the others is still there, right? It is. Um, And we constantly, that that us and them, you know, is still there. You know, it's not erased yet. How do you go about it? What's your perspective? How, you know, because it came innately in you, you know, from your childhood, but tell me more about that and what people can do if they're afraid of someone else or is different than them. What can they do to, to reach where you are? Where you're saying, Hey, they're all, we're all the same. Yeah, we are all the same. I think, you know, what, what did it for me was just getting to know other people from from when I was a child, getting to know um, a Romanian refugee uh, to as an adult um, being a neighbor to some uh, a family from Iran, you know, and that they were just people, just just like me, you know, um, and and when I look at the United States and I know that we have some great division and there is a lot of issues. But what I truly love about the United States, and one of the things I, I want to be a champion for, is the, the, the real values of being an American. And those real values are accepting of all different cultures, of all different religions and different backgrounds, accepting of the, that basic part of humanity, that we're all in this together. It's not perfect right? Um, we're, we're not there yet. It's not all equal um, at this point, but it's that aspiration. And that's what I saw in the eyes of uh, the Romanian refugee, Virel, when I was a kid. And that's what I saw in my neighbors, you know, Mona and Uman, this idea of we're Americans, we're Americans too. And, and I love that. You know, and it was, it was that, that's, that's what I stood for. That's why I was proud to wear that flag on my shoulder, you know, because I could say, yeah, they're my neighbors. There's not that many countries out there that have that kind of coolness about it. I mean, there's just, there isn't. And I'm proud of that. I would went all around the world to the Middle East, to, you know, Japan, to, you know, stationed in, in all kinds of different places. And that's what I loved about America, um, our diversity. Uh, and, and so I think it's a strength. And I think we need more leaders that, that um, talk about it as a strength. It's so true. I actually think that that's, these values is what we all need to defend, right? Like it's more important, in my opinion, than any, because it's the soul of America this value-driven culture, you know, it's sort of, for me as an immigrant, you know, and as someone who grew up in another country, but also lived in other countries, it is indeed what is most unique about America. It's truly, you know, and Americans like you, you know, fighting for the essence of that values, not being opportunistic about, I mean, there's People are opportunistic about it. I was like, no, what is inspiring about this country is people who are you know, fighting for the essence of the value, for the, you know, the, the purity of that value, right? That is the most important. We cannot compromise that because we lose everything if we compromise that. We do. That. We lose um, a really important piece of what America is all about. Um, I, and, you know, if you look even 100 years ago, I mean, I, I was born here in America, but my, my great-grandparents weren't necessarily born here. And, you know, they face discrimination um, coming from Ireland or coming from Germany, you know, in, in a different time. And yet 
we're all here now and we're Americans. And I, I look at people who come here and I'm like, I'm glad you're here. You know, the other day I was taking my, I, I had some things to be, to be uh, fixed uh, sewing and I'm not a very good sewer. And uh, so I, I took them into the shop and the woman had a very thick accent. And um, I asked her where she was from and she said, Ukraine. And I, of course, looked at her and, and said, how are you? And um, how long have you been here? And she'd been here for 20 years, but she still has a brother and a sister back in Ukraine and she hadn't talked to them and couldn't get a hold of them. And it was really hard conversation because I just wanted her to know, you know, that, that we care. But at the end of it, I, I said to her what I say to, to a lot of people who um, come here to the United States is, I'm glad you're here. I am. I'm glad she's our neighbor um, and, and a part of our, our, our state here in Kentucky and a part of our country. She makes us better. But I wish I wish we could could help her family. You know, when I um, first came to America, it was 1990 and it was just a few months before the Gulf War. And I came here by coincidence before the, the Gulf War. And I was devastated in the Gulf War because my family were in Iraq. I was seeing CNN with all the green lights, if you remember, the, the screens and all of that. And I didn't know what my family was going through. And uh, everyone, actually, I mean, in my case, everyone would stop me. It was like, where are you from? And I was like, Iraq. And they would hug me and they say, can we do anything? And I was the enemy, like Iraq was the enemy, right? And people's like, are you okay? Do we need, can we help you? Are you, where, where are your family? And the, you know, they didn't, they didn't even have to know too much context as much as I was alone here, right? And there was this generosity and hospitality of welcome and, and, and glad you're here, like you said to the Ukrainian woman. Um, and sometimes, Sometimes if we only show love is good enough. Sometimes, you know, if that's the minimum we can do, then that's good enough. Um, Amy, you have championed many things. We talked about some of uh, your career. We didn't talk much. And, you know, I'm sure everyone knows, you know, your, your heroic uh, candidacy, uh, Senate candidacy against Mitch McConnell. You end your book as you're like enjoying family time. Uh, you talk a bit, uh, rather, I learned a little bit about your foundation that you're doing for uh, women veterans. So tell me about how that's going. But also I'm curious about, uh, will we see you again in the political field? Well, um, so what I'm working on right now is called um, Honor Bound Inc. And it is, um, an organization that inspires and supports women who have served the country, not just in the military, but have served in many, you know, Peace Corps, AmeriCorps, you know, um, FBI, CIA. So if you've, you've put your life, you've, you've served the country in some capacity, I think you have what it takes to get into the political arena. And I think we need your leadership now more than ever. I mean, women are still only 25% of our legislatures around uh, the country. And, you know, we as women, we win at the same rate as men. The reason there's only 25% women in these places is that we don't run at the same rate as men. So um, what I want to do is help people get started and help those women who have served because women who are have been in the military or other forms of service, we typically don't have large donor bases to start. We don't, we don't come from political last names or are millionaires. So it's really hard to get started in politics when you don't have that. So I wanted to, to try to help with that. And that's what I'm working on now. And, you know, as far as me getting, getting back into politics, I am working behind the scenes. Uh, and I would love to serve this country if, uh, if I get the opportunity to do that um, in the future. So we'll see. But I think there's a lot uh, that needs to happen right now. Um, for example, one project that I'm um, starting to develop is this idea of making sure that we protect um, the secretaries of state around the country. We know that um, uh, Trump has wanted to, uh, he hasn't won. He didn't win in 2020. He came very close to having people basically throw out, you know, valid votes. And that's his path to victory in 2024. 
And so he's trying to install people in key positions in key states, i.e. secretaries of states and in key states around the country that were our election deniers that will just basically take the votes and throw them out if it if it doesn't go their way. I mean, that that's literally what they're trying to do. And so what I want to do is make sure that the person that gets into those positions is somebody who's just going to count the votes correctly. It's not even a partisan thing. But yet this is work that needs to be done right now. Um, so these are things that I'm I'm uh, working on sort of behind the scenes. Wonderful. Wonderful. And how does it feel being a full time I can't say full-time mom, a more more present in, in the house, right? Because you're very career woman, the, the career driven you all your life. And how does it feel? Like spending more time with the family. That's what I mean. You yeah, know, it's, it's, cooking more. It and, is. Doing, it's, yeah. It's wonderful. I, I am not, uh, I'm, I'm not super domestic material. Um, I, I like to work uh, and do lots of different things. That's why I have my honor bound and uh, my super PAC democratic majority action and, and some other things going on. I also teach national security policy at university of Kentucky. So I got a lot going on, but I am home. Uh, I get to read to my children every night, which is awesome. I coach um, my nine-year-old uh, baseball, believe it or not. And I coach soccer in the fall to my seven-year-old and nine-year-old. Uh, and it, it is fun to be home. It is fun to be in their life. And I'm also happy to allow my husband some time to do what he wants to do, which is to go back flying. And, you know, that life is not um, super conducive to a campaign life. So I've got to allow him uh, the opportunity to, to, to go and, and train and do what he wants to do and me hold down the fort for a little bit. So that's what we're doing right now. But I look at I look at, you know, my home being a mom and being a, a daughter and a wife as equally important as anything else I've ever done. So even in the middle of the Senate campaign or the House campaign, I, I didn't ever want to drop that. That's so important and, and remains so. That's very, very important. You know, I mean, I actually think that's, most important thing that we keep on raising to people that careers are important, showing up in this world is important, being in service is important, but do not forget your family, your friends, and yourself. You know, like these are all equally important. Last but not least, I want to ask you some rapid questions. Um, any um, music or song you keep on going to for lifting your spirit up or for solace? Oh gosh. Um, I have a playlist <laughs> that I, that I, that I, uh, do, but I can't really even think of one song. I think, uh, that there, there is one song that is, is that I love. It's, um, come fly with me with, um, my husband and, and Frank Sinatra. I, I always love to come back to that. It always make, makes me happy. So I love that. I love that. <laughs> Books that you keep on going to? One of my favorite books um, I think you'll appreciate is um, Nicholas Kristof's um, Half the Sky. Uh, I really read that in a time in my life when I was sort of questioning, what am I doing? I just, I think it's, I think it's a fantastic book uh, for women to read. Um, so I, I like that one. I also love The Soul of America um, by John Meacham. It's, a, it's history, uh, American history. Um, American history, as you know, is not, uh, it's not all perfect. And we shouldn't whitewash it. Um, I think we should, we should uh, teach it to our kids, the good and the bad. But there is a soul there. There is a soul of America. And it's our job. It's our generation that is, is, tasked with keeping it alive poem or wisdom that carries your heart through there's a saying by uh, Maya Angelou that I always go back to and it's that people will not remember what you said but they will remember how you made them feel and that's the kind of person I want to be to others, somebody who cares, somebody who 
believes in them. Uh, so that's, I like that one. And last, and the last one, I promise, a movie, your favorite movie that you often go and watch and rewatch again. <laughs> that's funny. I have a, a few favorite movies. One is, it's kind of corny, but I love the sound of music. Uh, I'm very much a, a uh, idealist, I guess. Um, I'm trying to get my kids addicted to that as much as I was. Um, and I love The Princess Bride. It's an old sort of comedy from 20 some years ago. Whoops. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's just so funny. And I just love that. Okay, this is an odd, amazing. I grew up in Baghdad, Iraq, with my mom playing Sounds of Music all the time. I know all the songs to it as a child in Iraq. And Princess Bride is one of my favorite movies, as you wish. I love, I love it. it. I love it. I mean, I'll even say, you know, my my seven-year-old will run around with his little plastic sword and I'm like, are you Inigo Montoya? And he looks at me like, <laughs> I'm like, he looks at me like, what are you talking about, mom? I'm like, oh, we got to watch this movie. <laughs> That's so beautiful. Amy, it is always a pleasure, always a pleasure being in conversation with you, hearing you, hearing, it's inspiring. Honestly, it's your that light within, that belief in values, it's transparent, it's seen, it's authentic, it's inspiring. Thank well, you. Well, thank you for what you do. And to your listeners, you know, don't give up on America. We, we are America. That was Amy McGrath. Her memoir, Honor Bound, is available everywhere books are sold. For full transcripts of this episode, please visit www.findcenter.com. Do remember to subscribe to this podcast. It is free and made available by Find Center. Redefine is produced by me, Zainab Salvi, along with Rob Carso, Casey Khan, and Howie Khan at Freetime Media. Our music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Hannah Aydin, Neil Goldman, Carolyn Pincus, and Shira Johnston. See you next week for another episode of Redefined with Zainab Salbi.